and welcome to the Of Interest podcast. I'm Gareth Vaughan from interest.co.nz. As part of international efforts to combat long-term shifts in temperatures and weather patterns, or climate change, caused by human activities, New Zealand has committed to reaching net zero emissions of long-lived greenhouse gases by 2050 and reducing biogenic methane emissions from 2017 levels by between 24% and 47% by 2050. According to the latest greenhouse gas inventory from the Ministry for the Environment, the agricultural sector is responsible for the biggest percentage of gross emissions, or was in 2020, at 50%. Methane, largely from agricultural sources, made up 44% of gross emissions. The digestive process of ruminant farm animals such as cows and sheep and manure management are the two key sources of this. Our guest for this episode is someone who's working on research and technology that it is hoped will help New Zealand's agricultural sector reduce methane emissions. The guest is Mark Aspen, Consortium Manager at the Pastoral Greenhouse Gas Research Consortium. Hi Mark and welcome to the Of Interest podcast and thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, nice to have a chat about this uh, good work. Look, to begin with, can you tell us a little bit about what the Pastoral Greenhouse Gas Consortium is, um, including who owns and funds it, and what you do there, and, and indeed how long you've been doing it for? <laughs> okay, the, the Pastoral Greenhouse Gas Research Consortium, or the colloquial kind of you know, an, an, anagram is the PGGRC, uh, has been in existence since 2003. It is a pastoral industry or livestock industry backed organization. The farming groups that's, that come through there, so the um, sheep and beef area, the deer industry and the dairy industry uh, are all participants in the consortium. And back in 2003, the government uh, was setting up a number of uh, consortium through their science vote to tackle these tough kind of problems that uh, people were looking at across the primary sector. Um, this one was about pastoral greenhouse gases, and so methane and nitrous oxide, but there was others also on, on other factors. And basically, the deal was that if we put a dollar on the table, it gets doubled by the government, and we've got to exist. So it's been a partnership in that sense um, since uh, 2003 between the uh, industries and um, the government and the science, because we're talking about biological challenges here, and so it's science. So There's always been a three-way partnership that we've been involved in, and um, since 2003 through to about 2019 or 20, we've probably invested about 90 million or directed about 90 million dollars to find ways to reduce methane and nitrous oxide. So. Um, the names that people will be familiar with in terms of the partners of the consortium. Uh, Fonterra, Dairy NZ, Beef and Lamb New Zealand, Deer Industry New Zealand, um, the Fertiliser Association, PGG's Wrightsons and Land Corp. And Ag Research is a partner as well, which is the Crown Research Institute, most active in this space. Okay, so, and you've been running for around 20 years now. So, interested, what have your key learnings been along the way? And, um, uh, I mean, I guess, what, what would you say would be the achievements to date as well? So I suppose the first thing is we've learned a lot, but like when we started in 2003 and I became the manager in four, so there was kind of right from the weird go, we were 
you know, Kyoto was right on the table in those points. And they, in those days, we were worrying about getting into Kyoto, and we had all the issues around around uh, the the sector being asked to pay without any solutions for its emissions. Um, and really, this has been an investment to try and create that. We had six or seven different approaches that were supposedly going to reduce emissions, and we probably I don't know whether it's naively, but we kind of went into it thinking, well, we just need to tune those up, and these ideas, these science ideas, will um, will stack up, and we'll have some solutions, and you know, we'll deal with it. Um, pretty pragmatic approach, but we very quickly realised that actually, methane and nitrous oxide are very complex biological challenges, and there was a lot more science to be needed, and so that's where the investment, um, instead of being proven. Um, solutions, we started to deal into the science behind it and investment and that thing. So we really learned a whole lot about the fundamentals of uh, ruminant and how they produce both methane and, and nitrous oxide. Uh, we've, we are the organisation that funded the sequencing of the first rumen methanogen in 2007, which uh, genetic sequencing we're all totally familiar with now in our world of um, COVID and, you know, they sequence strains left, right, and centre within days, it seems. Well, we took it six years, I think it was, by the time we finished doing the first methanogen. And the organisation, uh, sorry, the organism that makes methane and a ruminant, a methanogen is a very hard to culture and hard to uh, study organism. Um, and so that's um, been always one of the tough challenges we've had. So we know, so we know a lot more about the fundamentals. Um, the wins we've had, we now know that we can select genetically for animals that produce lower methane, and so that's one of our programs of work. Uh, we know we can find um, forages uh, that we can feed animals, and if you feed them as a full diet, that can reduce emissions. Our challenge here in New Zealand is a couple of these, well, there's plenty of them, but like the major, one of our major ones is that we're a grazing nation when it comes to livestock production. Our animals all eat grass. And there's very few that don't eat 100%, and there's 90% you know, across the board. Some of the more intensive industries or some parts of a, of a livestock's life, there might be supplements going in, but generally it's all grass. And that makes it really challenging for us to be able to feed them. Because when we're talking about methane, it's actually happening every day they ferment and, and eat. So it's got to be, if you're going to do something, you've got to be doing it there and then when they are producing methane. So it's it, that makes it challenging. So we know about the rumen bugs that are in there now a lot more than we did. Uh, we know there's forages, we know about genetics. We've found compounds that can be delivered into the rumen as a feed additive and reduce emissions. And we've embarked on finding a vaccine approach where the animal creates an antibody that will actually impact and reduce. And that's, that's still um, a, uh, a possibility, but it's a very tough kind of place to, to work through. Um, alongside that, I suppose, what other things we, you know, we really just, we've informed lots of people about what methane and nitrous oxide is and our farmers, um, it's kind of, what's the word? It's a, it's a <clears throat> an ill wind that blows nobody any good. Our New Zealand farmers would be probably most well informed about methane and nitrous oxide emissions on their livestock of any in the world. And even though that may, may not be, to, I think that's to their advantage because now we've got people thinking about this thing directly, how they can do something about it. So, um, yeah, there's been a lot of stuff we've covered off. 
Yeah. No, it's, you've certainly had plenty on your plate to keep you going. Um, look, over that sort of 20-year period, obviously the, 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 the makeup of the, um, of, of the national ruminant animal stock has changed a bit, obviously. Yep. So obviously more dairy cows now than there would have been then and, and less sheep now than there would have been when you started out. Does that change the methane and nitrous oxide makeup from the stock at all? I mean, is methane from a, from a dairy cow the same as from a beef cow or a sheep or a deer? Yep. Um, not particularly. Um, there's a couple of things. Let's deal with them. Um, in, in respect to methane and nitrous oxide, the major driver of emissions is the amount of feed eaten. So if a ruminant animal eats more feed, it will produce more methane on average. And we're trying to find technologies and approaches that actually decouple that methane production from the amount of feed eaten. Um, the numbers are something like 20 or 21.9 grams of methane for every kilogram of dry matter eaten. And so if you've got a cow and you've got a sheep, the sheep will produce less methane because the cow eats quite a lot more. Um, and that's that relationship is very, very solid. Um, and so nitrous oxide is a little different in the sense that in a dairy situation where you're really growing a lot of feed and you're trying to fully feed your cows all of the time to drive the milk, uh, production and be efficient as you can, you tend to have much more nitrogen in the system because pastures and plants need nitrogen and water to grow. So there's more nitrogen circulating through the animal. Our ruminant animals, because we graze, one of the factors that in our farming systems, eating any pasture, there's more protein in that diet than the animal requires. And so they will urinate and they will deposit nitrogen on the soils and periodically those soils will be um, will produce nitrous oxide and so the ratio of of the gases um, is kind of like it's about in a it's about 85 percent methane 15 percent um, nitrous oxide from the emissions and in a sheep and beef extensive the nitrous oxide um, losses are, are much lower because of the nature of the, the farming systems in terms of the shift in numbers, yes, you've had from 1990, you've had a, a, a big increase in dairy numbers and a, and a reflection that that's pushed down the sheep numbers. But when you look at the sheep and beef sector and you look at the dairy sector and the total emissions are about 50-50. So, you know, five, you know four, about, there's still about 4 million beef cattle um, and there's what, five or six million dairy cattle and 29, 27 million sheep. So, the ratio of the, because you know, most of our you know, extensive farms and deer um, are running, you know, sheep and beef and in some cases deer and versus a dairy farm, which is entirely cattle and, and as a milking. So yeah, it's still a 50-50 and it's a, it's a challenge across all of those farming sectors. So you, you're, you're focusing specifically in, in four areas now. Um, so methane inhibitors, um, the food and forage and uh, genetic selection, which you mentioned, and vaccine. I thought it'd be interesting to look at these four individually and sort of chat about where things are at and what yep. they are exactly, what they mean. So if we if we start with the methane in, inhibitors, I mean, what exactly is this? How does it work? And and where are okay. things at? Right. So a methane inhibitor, we tend to call them feed. We call them inhibitors. Um, off offshore, people call them feed additives. Um, 
when you hear about like what globally people are doing about reducing methane, um, many of the farming systems are what they term total mixed ration farming systems where the animals are housed or they're in a very um, refined area and their feed is brought in. And so everything that they eat is brought in. When you've got that situation playing out, you can add vitamins, you can add um, additives to to balance that feed, or you can you're making up the humans that are feeding those animals are making up the feeds, and so you can manipulate um, that diet to reduce emissions a lot more clearly than what we can. Or a free grazing animal decides what it's going to eat. The critical point, as I made, uh, is that if you're going to reduce methane in the rumen, you have to have an additive or an inhibitor on site when that methane's being made, because that's how it works. It blocks the enzyme pathways that produce methane. And the little bugs in the, in the bugs in the rumen produce methane to get their energy supply to survive and reproduce. So that's kind of familiar, isn't it? That's, that's, that's life. So they, they use the methane um, as a way of getting energy and, and being able to do what they want to do. So if you can block that, it slows down them, their ability to do that and they won't produce methane. Um, so the methanogens have evolved in the rumen um, to actually harness the hydrogen and CO2 that's a product of fermentation. They're obligate anaerobes. They don't like oxygen. You don't find them out in the environment where there's oxygen. Uh, you do find methanogens in the bottoms of wet lands and you find them in the bottoms of lakes and in the sea and in rice paddy fields because that is the other human uh, anthropogenic source of methane is rice paddy fields and it's a pretty significant number although the animals and cattle in particular tend to get, get they get the limelight so in those situations methanogens do their thing and produce methane so an inhibitor compound we're looking to find compounds that can actually target and stop that uh, when we started in 2002-3, one of our big concerns was why does the rumen produce methane? Now you're playing with the ecology of the rumen here. Do you, if you stop that happening in the management of the hydrogen that's being being produced from the fermentation, are you going to actually shut down the ability for the animal to get its food? Because that's what a rumen it does with the, its four stomach. It produces its energy and um, from fermenting hard to digest plant food. Basically, that's what a ruminants evolved to do. It's good to know that as time's gone on and there's been um, greater levels of inhibition through these kind of compounds and claims of up to 90% reduction and the ruminant is happy and it's not actually affecting its ability to get energy. So that's a positive because obviously if you say, well, yes, we can reduce emissions, but actually your animals are now unproductive and they don't really, you know, it's not a great sale. And so that was never going to be a path we could go. So we've learned that. Um, and so our, our goal in the New Zealand in, inhibitor program is to find um, highly active and potent compounds that we can then deliver in a way that a grazing animal can use, can utilize. And that's the delivery is our, our first port of call, if you like, is a room in, capsule or a rumen bolus, which is a device that you can load up the inhibitor so it just pays out very slowly in the rumen um, and, and they're used for 
minerals and they've used for anthelmintics and things like that now. So the technology and the understanding of how to do that's around. But you've got to find a compound that's very potent to fit in there. Because generally speaking, the inhibitors that are available, the seaweeds, the bromoforms, the, the bovia, which is a DSM product coming out of the Netherlands and Europe, um, can all be added to a total mixed ration. But in a grazing animal, they would only ever be available as a supplement um, once or twice a day uh, if you wanted to go and feed them in the paddock. And again, it's how long they last in the rumen. So that's, yeah. And that, just to clarify, so the rumen is part of the animal's stomach? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an intriguing use of language, I suppose. <laughs> the rumen is a fore stomach, F-O-R-E. And the animal, a rumen an animal has four F-O-U-R stomachs. And um, the first one is the rumen, then the reticulum, then the mason, then the abomasum, which is more the true stomach that like you or I as monogastrics have. So um, that's the reason it evolved. It doesn't have a blood supply. Um, things go from the rumen out, but it doesn't nothing have no blood supply. And it's basically fed by saliva from the mouth. The animal is a big um, ruminating fermentation vessel. So we'll, we'll move on to the, the second one on that list of four. So the feed and forage. So what is exactly is this and how, how does it work? So as I said, we're, our animals are grazing. And one of the first things we did in our piece of work was to see, well, can we find pastures? Like um, the colloquial terms for New Zealand pastures are kind of ryegrass and white clover. Those are the mixes of plant species we generally graze. Um, and... <clears throat> Were, but there are a whole bunch of different species that are used by farmers. And we went through and looked to see whether there was any individual that actually had re re reduced emissions. Um, that's not, we haven't found any any grazing plants that, that, that can do that, but we have found crops. And, and on a farm um, for parts of the year, whether it be in the summer for food, for animal performance or to slow down rotations in the winter. There are crops, brassica crops, um, fodder beet, and other um, monograph, you know, mo monocultured crops that farmers feed. Uh, in dairy farms, you see a lot of maize silage being fed. So we've been evaluated all of those, and that piece of work is around those forages. Uh, we know that um, in the brassica family, um, forage rape, which is a forage fed to lambs, but also fed um, to uh, adult stock as well. If it's fed as 100% of the diet, so the cows are only eating, um, or cows or sheep or deer are only eating 100% um, of forage rape, um, you can get a 25% reduction in methane compared to if they were eating pasture. So that's a crop, but those annual crops are used for six weeks of the year. The year has 52 weeks. The rest of the time, the animals are out eating pasture. So our ability, because of the way we graze um, and the way we operate our, our efficient farming systems here in New Zealand makes it very tough. And so forages. And the other thing that we've found is, as time's gone on is that for these alternative forages, you need to be quite a big part of the diet. So the animal's got to be actually eating 70% of the diet as an alternative crop to overcome the, em the emissions that would be uh, otherwise made. So it's it's got a place in the farming systems but it's not a panacea for us to be able to you know ideally 
you know, our perfect world was that we would find that um, the very best quality feed has the lowest methane, and if all farmers work their farming systems to have the very best quality feed, we would have low emissions. Um, it's not that simple. It doesn't move that much across all the different seasons of the year in terms of the amount of emissions that come off pasture. Um, it's, so you know, that's, that's where we've got to with that. And the third one, genetic selection. So this one sounds interesting. So uh, how does that work exactly? So what we did here, and we, 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 we did this groundbreaking work in, um, in sheep, but we basically um, highly genotyped and, and uh, performance recorded sheep, ewe lambs were put through chambers. And we found that there's a variation of amount of methane given the same feed, same conditions, um, we took the top 10%, the ones that made the most methane, and we took the least uh, ones had the least methane, which are the ones that we're really after, uh, and mated those to rams that we had used. We also screened for high and low. And um, through that screening, we got an understanding of the genetics, and now we can select. Now we are very confident that we can select and that methane emissions are actually a heritable trait uh, as in the language. So people can genetically select for rams that are lower in methane and use those in the sheep industry. And we don't have any evidence that that's not the case in other ruminants as well. And the work in cattle is happening right now uh, in the dairy industry. It's been funded through um, the, the New Zealand Agricultural Rehouse Centre and um, eventually, but what we've done with sheep is so we started off with a flock that was 4% um, different between the highs and the lows on average. After three or four generations of selection where we've mated highs to highs and lows to lows, which is kind of the extreme um, approach, those are now at about 12 to 16% different. So over time, we're only getting a very small amount per generation, but you're building on that. It's, it's um, uh, so genetics and genetic selection for whatever trait is permanent and cumulative. So you build on what you've done previous years. So over time, we think we can we can reduce the national flocks, sheep flock, um, by a significant amount, seven to 10% over by about 2040. Um, and we are rolling that out, out now uh, into the New Zealand uh, sheep industry. Uh, many breeders are now selecting for methane to to find those animals that are lower and, and that will come through. So that's a big success story for us, global first for any livestock industry to be able to select and do those things. Um, it's small and but perfectly formed, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it will it will make a difference over time and will underpin any other kind of more dramatic changes that we might be able to bring through any other technologies or management. And what about the vaccine option? Whereabouts is that at and, and how would that work? Uh, so the vaccine option is one where instead of looking to, in, to incorporate into the feed or bring into the animal a feed additive that is inhibiting, we're actually looking to find um, antibodies in the same for our immune system that actually target and will inhibit methanogens from making methane in the rumen. And we do that, um, we know because the utility of that, before I go into that, the utility of that is pretty immense. If we can actually prove that we can inhibit through antibodies 
a ruminant animal, then it doesn't matter what farm system you could actually impact, and then that would reduce. That would have a much. You know, it's got a lot of utility in any farm system. If you vaccinate and you can get a 10, 20 percent uh, reduction, that's going to be pretty significant. But it's not easy because what we're trying to do here is introduce um, proteins and parts of the methanogen to the ruminant so that they produce antibodies. Antibodies are part of our immune system that we have, and obviously the COVID, we're all up to speed with that now. But um, you know, we do we have vaccinations. But also at the same time, we've got antibodies going through our bloodstream. We've got them in our saliva, and this is the this is the path. So, a ruminant animal puts um, sheep something like seven liters, seven to ten liters of saliva a day. A cattle uh, adult cattle will be something like a hundred liters, and the antibodies that are in our blood are also in the in in the saliva. And so, the principle of a vaccine is that we would produce specific antibodies that target methanogens that will go into the rumen and stop them producing methane, stop them creating uh, methane, and that's how it will work. And so um, it's a natural, kind of more natural way, but um, it's proving very tough. But I suppose we've always maintained there's two parts here, Gareth. One is it can't work, and we should stop doing, doing science to prove it can. And second one is it does work, and we've tested, and we've on we're definitely on the second on the latter path. We have got antibodies. We know that the um, ruminants will produce antibodies against um, whole methanogens and parts of a methanogen. We add those into pure cultures of the methanogens in a, a laboratory. We can see that they interact. Um, we can see in rumen fluid and in the rumen contents that they pull them out, we can find specific antibodies. We just haven't seen them have a big enough impact to reduce methane yet. And so um, it's groundbreaking science in that sense, um, but exciting if we can make it work. Yeah, no, it sounds like a, an interesting project. So just in terms of those four, um, four areas we've just chatted about, so... The, obviously, the genetic selection is underway. That's happening, and the feed and yep. forage option is happening. The vaccine yep. is a is a very interesting work on, um, and the, yep. the, the the methane in, inhibitors are they in use yet or not? Well, <clears throat> there are a few coming into the world market, but our inhibitors are not, and we've that's a long path. We we're, if we're adding a feed additive into a ruminant animal, um, with being an export focused nation and food. Um, we will be really, uh, we have to go through a, a long process to make sure they're safe and, and do those things. But in actual fact, the logistics to manufacture and deliver and actually do all these things, they, this is years of work. So if we have a proof of concept point where we know this will work at a certain level that's, that we want it to work, then we're probably five to seven years from that point before it actually gets into a farm, you know, it can be registered as a product. So these quite long lead times and it's kind of common nature with any animal health farmer or any of those kinds of things. So yeah. Um, yep. I'm but sure there are yeah. compounds internationally. DSM has Bovir, uh, there's CH4 Global in New Zealand, but other players with um, seaweed and extract inhibitors that are starting to appear in world markets in the feedlot kind of industries. So yeah, I mean, there's not many, many options 
open yet, but it's growing all the time. Okay. So obviously there's some regulatory um, hurdles, I imagine, with some of this stuff. Um, and potentially, I mean, obviously there's some intellectual property involved in all of this as well. Uh, yep. I, I'm just wondering, in, in terms of that side of it, uh, I mean, if you're, as you say, you know, we're an exporting nation. I mean, agriculture's one of, if not the key export industries we have. Um, do, will you have to get regulatory approvals in New Zealand and overseas or just in New Zealand? And, and is there potential for IP there that, that can be licensed overseas? On the regulatory, yes, we will. We will have to have regulatory approval. Um, the current process that is in place is that the, our compounds, our inhibitory compounds, will go through, and vaccines will go through the um, animal compounds veterinary medicines process here in New Zealand. Um, there's kind of two parts. The regulatory part is about like, making sure things are safe, regulatory, in, you know, animal welfare as well, truly looked after as well, and all of the things that are important to us as farmers and as consumers and all of the people you know who, who buy ruminant-based products. So that's absolutely critical. It's a, you know, you, there's no, no, you don't have to think about that. You just have to do these things. It's a cost, but that's the reality of the world we live in, and that's a good thing. Um, and the other part of it in the greenhouse gas is making it count in the national inventory. So if we do this technology, we bring this technology in and we make our emissions lower, we want to make sure it counts in our national accounts. We want to make sure it counts in our farmers' accounts. So we've always maintained in the industry that if you want us to reduce our emissions, and farmers are absolutely embracing that challenge, um, you need to do it at the farm source, where it's, these emissions are all off farm. And so um, having the ability for farmers to be able to count and, and make sure that works is a real critical part of why people will do things, you know, like, um, so they need to work that up. So all of those things must be sorted out and understood before we be able to go to market. Um, and if we don't have the, if, if you've got a product that's got a residue, um, then you then you go into a market and international markets will look for those residues. Uh, you've got to make sure you've got accepted levels in the world markets. And so we're an export nation. So we can't just register and look after it for New Zealand because 90% of the stuff we produce goes offshore. So we are a real world citizen in that sense, feeding what 45 million people with our products. And yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and in terms of what's I happening. Right, big question, have I? <laughs> um, no, but uh, that that's that. Yeah, that's an interesting area too. So in terms of intellectual property, we own the PTGRC owns the intellectual property that it develops. And we own that on behalf of our farmers who have funded the consortium. And so our interests in owning that intellectual property are twofold. One is to make sure New Zealand is not disadvantaged in the sense of our farmers, because that's that's where the emissions are, be, are to be made. Um, and so we want to make sure that New Zealand farmers are at the forefront of these technologies and have no disadvantage over that. And, and as I say, the emissions come off farm. That's where the big wins are. The other thing about it is that it enables, by having a unique position and owning the intellectual property, it enables us to find the right partners who can actually, you know, develop, distribute, manufacture, and do those things really well, and have some, you know, and, and have some real partnership with them and collaboration with them to actually deliver globally. So there is a big market of ruminants out there. 
uh, both sheep and cattle, I think, are over the 1 billion mark in terms of the world populations. Uh, what are we, 29 million sheep and um, 12 million cattle. So, you know, our market's very small and wouldn't be big enough for anyone to come here. But um, so that's why we own intellectual property and why we, you know, we work carefully to make sure that we can do things right. Now, obviously, there must be uh, groups in other countries doing similar to work, work to what you're doing. And you, you mentioned in, in the, uh, you know, methane inhibitor area, they, 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 that's obviously something used overseas. You, you said feed additives they're known as in some places. To what extent do you work with people overseas at all? Oh, most of our programs have got collaborations uh, with international groups. We've got an international partner involved with the consortium um, for the inhibitor program. Um, so we have a animal, a, an animal health company that's involved with that. Um, we're also working with other science groups at the science level. The, we're working with groups from Australia. Um, we know that the uh, Irish are very active in this space as well, many countries in the world. I mean, New Zealand's unique, 50%, as a developed country, 50% of our emissions come from agriculture. The other developed countries in the world that are, uh, the next one's Ireland at 37%, I think it is at the moment. Um, and most countries start to drop that ground below 20% or, you know, the US, which is 20% of the global emissions, is less than 9%. So agriculture is a big ticket item for us, but not, you know, volume-wise, we're 0.17% of the world's emissions. So, I mean, that's a different question altogether about things, but yeah. Um, so yeah, I think there are lots of, there's been a lot more science, but we've been right in the months that since 2003, across the board, those four areas that we've talked about, Gareth, are, you'll find individual countries that are active in inhibitors, little bit of this and a little bit of that, but we've been bloody comprehensive. And, you know, it's, and that is um, a big tick to our science teams and our people in New Zealand who have really done a lot of work for ruminants across the board. So um, we're well recognised globally as a country that does ruminant science very, very well. So just in terms of the four key areas you're working in that we have discussed today, I mean, if if... If things go really well there and you get a vaccine up and running, for example, um, to, how significantly could they reduce uh, ruminant animals' meth methane emissions by? I mean, will will these on their own get us to those targets that we have as a country or will other steps be required as well? Um, they could do. Um, and I say that because if you look at, there's kind of two parts to think about this. One is the actual impact of the technology. So if you're on an, if you just think about it on an annual basis of one year um, or every day, I suppose, but at one year, a genetic solution might reduce your emissions, your methane emissions by 1% a year. It just, and it builds, but that's the thing. A, if you were able to feed a total mixed ration animal every day, uh, bovia, then their reductions in methane would be 30%. There's a cost of doing that, of course, but their reduction will be 30% every, for every day you feed them. And so what kicks in here is um, um, the, so you've got the impact of the of the technology and then you've got the amount of the adoption. So with our grazing animals, we're gonna to have to find solutions that can be used in the grazing situation, which means even though it might be able to reduce it 30%, you're not gonna be doing that every day of the year and the costs are, are, are things. So 
I think there will be a mixture of solutions that could do. Genetics, if we could get genetics over time, will certainly um, give us a good solid baseline to what the reductions could be. Uh, the vaccine is a kind of, if we can make it to work and it gives us a 20% reduction, then that could be pretty significantly uh, impacted and would possibly be able to be used across all of our sheep systems. But like the likes of the inhibitors, where you're in a dairy situation where you're seeing the cows twice a day is much more tractable than in a sheep and beef or a, where an extensive where a farmer could choose to give a daily supplement there's, there's no doubt about that, but it will depend on the nature of how that works. So there's a lot of other factors that kick in, the practicality of the of the cotton, um, as well as the impact and, and how much of it. So there are solutions on the thing. If it's, as you described, in the perfect world, yes, we could probably make a big hole in the, in the agricultural emissions if we could get them all to work. And the next question that people say is when they say you've got four things, do they stack? Do you add the one to the 20 and the 30? And so we don't know that. We're early, this is early days. So, or are they just actually targeting the same process in the room? And so you either get a 1% or a 20% or a 30%, but you don't get 51%. So, I mean, those are all the kind of questions that people who, who love this stuff about all the time. Yeah, no, absolutely. You, you mentioned before, um, so in a, in a global context, you know, New Zealand's um, greenhouse gas emissions are 0.17% of, of, of yep. global emissions and New Zealand agriculture is thus about half of that. So it's tiny in a global context. And obviously, um, you know, we are exporting food and producing food for our own population as well. And of course, as humans, we certainly need it. Um, and, um, you know, it's a key export industry. I mean, merchandise exports for the February year, about $72.7 billion and, and, and we did a quick back-of-the-envelope calculation in the office yesterday and worked out that products from remnant animals are about $35 billion of that, so around about half of that. So it's really significant. Um, and then, you know, we've got New Zealand's got its, its international commitments around climate change with the, 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 the Paris Agreement, et cetera. Yep. And obviously there's the, the, the moral question about future generations and, and what we should do for them. So I guess there's a heck of a lot to weigh up in, in, in all of this. And people will say, well, but, you know, if India and China and the US don't do much, then what's the point of us doing it? But I was just curious as to where you factor all of this in. And, and, and I just chuck in here a, a comment from... Simon Upton, who's the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment. Yep. And he was, you know, he, he said in a recent speech, we have an interest in continuing to sell products to high-income markets where consumers are taking an increasing interest in the emissions footprint of their food and drink. So being able to show that New Zealand products are associated with the lowest possible emissions will be essential if we are to, can you, if we are to continue to be a preferred supplier. So is that a, an argument or a comment that you guys sort of pin on your wall or I mean, do, you, do, you, do, you, do you agree with all of that? I think I do agree with all of that. I suppose there's a few things that sort of, um, let's just pick that out. I mean, I totally support where, where Simon Upton was coming from. Look, and our farmers, believe it or not, actually do wish to reduce their emissions. They recognise that their ruminant animals produce methane and nitrous oxide. So I, that's, that's a done, yes, there are, people who will kind of say that's not the reason for global warming or global warming doesn't exist. We don't want to go into that. I think the evidence is pretty solid 
our species, human beings at 8 billion are having a bit of an impact and we need to do something about it. So we, um, so that's, that's done. But the issue that kind of gets everyone is that the, the fairness of it and like being asked to, to you know, 0.17% of the emissions, what's the rest? Of, the reason the human beings are having a big effect is probably more about energy than it is about food supply. So the rhetoric around agriculture being 50% of the emissions, and I'm sure you'll be familiar with the idea of the of how methane is counted in the atmosphere and, and how we've got split gases uh, because of its warming, all of that still, we're, we're learning as we go. But I think fundamentally here, people tend to go back into their shells pretty fast if they think that, you know, we're the reason for warming. You know, we've just had massive floods here. The, the science is coming out saying climate change has, has changed the atmosphere's temperature and we've got more moisture in there. I, you know, if you go cause and effect, 0.17% caused all that flooding. I don't think so. Fossil fuel has, and I don't think we want to take our eye off the ball, but that's not a cop out. Our farmers are kind of thinking, and look, that's why in Hiwaki Kanara and things like that, we've said, well, hold on, we've got a whole lot of trees and we do have sinks. And if you're going to do it, let's do it properly and think about all of the levers that we can pull and do it well. And, and it's an understanding. Once we start to understand all these things, um, you will be surprised how fast we can do. I mean, electric cars is, is you know, completely, if people get access to electric cars and they can use them, then they start to use them. So these tools, if we can develop them, and um, I think people will positively take it. We're not seeing collapses in our animals' digestive systems by, by interfering with the amount of methane coming out of them. Um, we do farm in parts of the, you know, if you were going to get food out of that land, how else would you do it? I mean, there's a lot of big socio kind of comment in behind it. But I think, you know, we are in a great position here to, we've got great, great science know-how, we've got great innovative farmers and industries in this country, and we can actually make this work. And we, as the tools we've got now to understand what's going on in the room. And it's kind of phenomenal when we think, as I said to you earlier in the interview, it took us, we started in 2004 to find out the genomic pathway for methane. And we finally closed the genome in 2007 or 2008 for our methanogen. They do that in sort of a week or a day or two now, and it costs a very small amount. So um, I think we will find solutions, but it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very um, tough space when we're when we're, you know, accused of causing the warming in the world. Where actually we're all in all this, and it's just about fairness, um, and that's an ethical thing, I suppose. But I think that's where, where we come from. No one's trying to get out of this. It's just saying you can't ask us to reduce. We don't have methods to do it. And that's exactly the same. If we didn't have an electric car, what would we be doing? Would we be going back to horses? I can't see that happening. So, you know, I think there are some issues in here that we just got to be mindful and, and, and think that I want, I want my people, my kids to have children and, and live up in the, in the world and be amazed as the way I have in my 60 odd years. So I, I don't think that, that changes no matter where you are. Well, look, Mark, thanks a lot for that. It's a really interesting discussion to catch up with all this, the work that is going on in this area. 
That is Mark Aspen, Consortium Manager at the Pastoral Greenhouse Gas Research Consortium. And I'm Gareth Vaughan at interest.co.nz with another episode of our Of Interest podcast.